Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 22. One day he got into the boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled. I'm sorry. And they were filling with water. That's a funny way to say it, right? The, The people were filling with water. Their boat was filling with water. And they were in danger. And they went and they woke him, saying, Master, Master. We are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which, opposed, which is the opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothing, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. And so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they were drowned. When the herdmen saw what had happened, they fled. And told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. I think we're having a little bit of technical difficulties. So I would normally say the grass withers and the flower fades. And you would say, but the word of our God endures forever. So now we're going to do this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Yes, it does. 
So when I was in college, I, um, I lived in upstate New York, and I went to school in uh, western Pennsylvania, southern western Pennsylvania. And just this week, they got one of those miserable, messy, mucky storms that you get. But the great part about being in college is that colleges have no mercy for students that have traveling problems like that. They say, if the dorm is closed, the dorm is closed. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. Get out. And so when I was in college, I found myself in a situation where we had to drive home, and we knew the roads were going to be a little bit messy, and I was traveling with a, with a friend and his older sister who went to college together, and they grew up in Boston, and we were going to drive up to New York, and they were going to be able to go on from there. And, um, and so we all kind of knew miserable winter roads. And for a long time, it was fine. And then we hit one of those just kind of storms as it gets a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And then all of a sudden, it's really bad. And you know it's bad when the plow trucks make a decision that only one lane is going to be plowed. And so you're just kind of in that one lane, regardless of which it is. So they had plowed the left lane, but it is miserable. And so we know you, you got to slow down. If people can't see you, throw your hazards on. Make sure you get lots of distance between your car and the next car. I'm giving you guys like a little, you know, for you Delaware drivers who never have to deal with this stuff, a little hint on how to do this. But we're driving and, and somebody comes up in the right lane that is unplowed. And they decide that they don't uh, want to drive as slow as everybody else is driving. And they're driving and they kind of are, they're speeding past us. And as they speed past us, they, they kind of swing out a little bit. And to avoid them, we just turn the wheel just ever so slightly. And in that moment, our car lost total control and we began to spin. And so I, I, I hit the brakes as much as I can, knowing that I don't want to flip the car or anything like that. But we spin, and in that moment, I have no idea where we are. The road that is supposed to be in front of me is somewhere back over my shoulder, and we are spinning, and I am feeling entirely out of control. And we stop, and we all just tense up because we expect that the next thing that's going to happen is a semi or a car is just going to slam into the back of us. And in God's mercy, we had just slid off the side of the road onto the shoulder. I'm sure that probably some of you, if you've had a, a, a stressful moment in, in a car like that, you can, you can <laughs> understand that, that feeling of dread and anxiety, that moment where you realize, I do not have the ability to fix this situation. I am in a moment of absolute chaos. And I wish I could say that I've only experienced that feeling once in my life. Now, I haven't had many car experiences like that, but there have been other times where loved ones are sick or there's some big thing going on in the family or at work or where all of a sudden that feeling of helplessness comes upon me again, and I say, I have no idea what to do. Even though my hands are on the wheel, I am not in control of the car. The passage this morning that we're going to look at deals with that kind of chaos, that kind of inability to take control. 
And in the passage today, we're actually going to look at two different kinds of chaos. A chaos that swarms around us and a chaos that sometimes lives inside of us. But what we're going to see is that Jesus has the power over both the chaos that is outside of us and the chaos that is inside of us. So in the first part of this story, we're told that Jesus and his disciples get into a boat and they begin crossing, it says, a lake. Now in in other gospels, it'll actually tell us the name of that lake. The name of that lake was the Sea of Galilee, which when you find out it's a, a lake feels a little bit underwhelming. But it was, not, it was not like a tidy little puddle, and it wasn't one of the Great Lakes. But for comparison, it was about seven miles across. So seven miles across is from our church to downtown Wilmington. Not nothing, especially if you're in a boat that's only propelled by the wind or an, an oar. <laughs> and as they're traveling... It says that a storm comes up. And quite honestly, storms, they always remind us that we are not in as much control as we wish we were. Just to, when we moved in, one of those big windy storms moved up uh, kind of through the area and we had just bought all of these uh, lawn furniture <laughs> And all of a sudden, the lawn furniture was tossed into the air, and I began thinking, this house has aluminum siding. I don't know how expensive it is to replace aluminum siding or these really nice windows, but I don't want one of those chairs flying through one of my windows or through one of them, you know, or smashing up my siding of this house that I just bought. And so I ran out and tried to secure them, and that was just a a simple moment where I thought, well, shoot, the storm is intense. But kind of both ancient people and modern people, we all know that storms really, they can can overwhelm us. And so we build with better materials, stronger alloys. We have stricter codes that demand different foundations and seismic activity. We have engineers that look over all the plans. And yet... Every month, you read in the news of a hurricane, a flood, a wildfire, maybe a a mudslide that just erases homes that were just a few days ago entirely secure. Now, the disciples, they're not in a 21st century engineered, you know, storm shelter. They're on a boat in the middle of this decently sized lake, three, four, five miles from shore. And it's enough of a storm that even the men who had been sailors are stressed in this moment. (laughs) And so as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. And the windstorm came up on the lake, 
And they were filling. That was hard for me to read because it's a little bit funny way to say it. But their boat was filling with water. And they were in danger of drowning. Now, I've warned before that we need to guard against what I would call a, um, a broken time machine when we read the Bible, that we kind of go back to medieval times or Renaissance or colonial Williamsburg in our head with Jesus. So this isn't, um, this isn't a Victoria-era steamship that they're on. This also isn't, you know, a, a colonial pirate ship where Blackbeard might show up on the deck. They're, in fact, on this small fishing vessel, and, and they've actually found versions of this boat that Jesus was probably on in the Sea of Galilee, buried in the mud at the same time, around 40 AD, they've actually found one. And the boat that they found was about 25 feet long, which is roughly the, the distance from this pillar to that pillar. So it's not a rowboat, but would you want to be on a storm? And something that big. And, and in terms of, of, of how wide it was and how kind of robust it felt, well, it was probably about seven feet wide at its widest, which is a, it's a little bit more than that, that back paneling there. I don't know if whoever designed this building said, I want to I make the, uh, the back part of the stage be the same dimensions as a boat in the Sea of Galilee. I don't think anybody did that, but it just so happens to work out that way. And it freaks them all out. And they wake Jesus up and he responds. And his response is, it's mind-boggling. If you think his response is normal, think again. Because he's their leader. And they wake him up because they are terrified. And so what would a leader do? Well, he would say, okay, men. We made a good attempt, but we got to turn around, right? Wouldn't, that could be a leader's perspective. Or he could say, okay, here's what we need to do. We need to pull everything together tightly, and we are going to power through this. He doesn't do either of those things. In fact, he doesn't even address the men. They wake him up, Jesus, we're drowning. Please help us. And he doesn't talk to them. He turns to the wind and the waves, and it says that he rebukes them. He says, get this, cut it out. And the craziest thing is that all of a sudden, it's quiet on the lake. The storm is gone. I'm sure there was a moment in some of the minds of the disciples when he didn't give them any commands and instead just talked to the open water. They thought, what is he doing? And then all of a sudden they said, who is it that just did that? They, they didn't know what to do. They were kind of freaked out. And Jesus says to them in response, He says, where is your faith? They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the wind and the waters and they obey him? He says, where is your faith? Now, if you have a perspective on Jesus that assumes that Jesus is, you know, a middle school gym teacher, 
that he's got a pension ahead of him and he doesn't like you any more than you like him. Well, then when Jesus says, where is your faith? It's a rejection. He says, you tried out for the team, kids. Get out. You failed. But he doesn't do that. Because he doesn't reject them. In fact, they're going to struggle with understanding him, not just this time, but time and time and time again. And Jesus is never going to say to them, get out. Which is really good news for us. (laughs) Because we sometimes have questions, don't we? We don't understand what Jesus is doing. We marvel at him. We wonder. And he never says to us, get out. So what does he mean when he says, where is your faith? Well, I think what he's saying to them is, guys... Do you really think that God led you all the way here to leave you here in the middle of this storm? Do you really think that God cares so little for you? And Luke recording this and Jesus saying this is something that the disciples need to hear and something that we need to hear. That there are moments in your life where things feel absolutely out of control. And they are absolutely out of your control. But they are not out of God's control. And if he's led you this far, why would he leave you here now? And so they continue across. And it says that they meet a man who had a demon. Now, the the thing is that the disciples probably thought that what had just occurred on the boat was the craziest thing that they were going to experience that day. But it says in verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Now, I think we have to acknowledge that that sounds a little bit weird to our modern, educated ears. And maybe you're hearing this, and you're struggling with understanding Christianity, or you're struggling with some of those kind of obvious things that that makes Christianity seem fairly unbelievable. And then you come to a passage like this, and it says there's a demon, and you say, but maybe the issue is not that you can't believe the story, maybe the issue has more to do with the language and the way that things are described here. Now, a big chunk of uh, the U.S. population would say that they believe in, in angels or demons or some sort of spiritual beings. And, and we might say, well, probably a lot of them are religious folks. But maybe less likely or... or, or kind of more surprising for all of us, is that 65% of Americans also would say, not exactly the same people, but 65% of Americans would say that they believe that there is alien life somewhere in the universe. So is, is that belief based on firsthand knowledge? Is it based on lots of unrefutable evidence? 
doesn't seem to be so. But that means that if you say, I believe in aliens, 65% of Americans will say, yeah, I mean, I'm not totally sure, but I think maybe you're probably right. I believe in, right, trans-dimensional beings or super-conscious entities. You kind of label it in a certain way and people say, yeah, that sounds, I'm, I'm not sure if I totally agree with you, but I could, I could see it. And you're very scientific. <laughs> if you say you believe in demons or angels or spirits, you sound like you're medieval or that you're an extra in a Monty Python movie. And so what if really the, the, the issue is that whether or not you say that you believe in aliens or angels, that the reality is that there's a lot of the universe that we don't understand. That we have to kind of recognize that there's a, a limit to our understanding. I mean, take for instance a virus. Is a virus alive? Or is it just kind of material? And people would say, I I'm not really sure, but I can tell you this, there are millions of people that die from viruses every year, aren't there? Has, have our, our whole world got turned upside down by a thing that we don't even know how to categorize. And so I think as we look at this passage, we can say, even if you're skeptical, Jesus is interacting with something that is beyond our normal categories. And in fact, even the way that this thing is talked about, it's going back and forth between the plural and the singular. And so Jesus says, what is your name? And this creature gives him an answer and says, legion. And Luke says, there were many demons inside of him. Now, we normally just kind of hear that and we say, well, yeah, legion, you know, the Roman legions were a lot of people and it just means that there's a lot and that's the end of it. But I think we have to understand that, that nowhere in Scripture, um, often, I'll say, Demons are, are trying to say something that maybe is kind of true, but is also much deeper a lie. So as Jesus interacts with Satan, it's always things that sound true, but are, are, are trying to, to break the truth of God, if possible. And so I actually think there's something deeper to this idea that this thing calls itself legion. Because a legion was made up of four, five, six thousand 5, 6,000 Roman soldiers. And the reason Romans were able to conquer the entire Mediterranean world was because of their military tactics involved with these legions. Because these legions were not just thousands of people and you threw them at the enemy and by sheer numbers you overwhelmed them. In fact, the reason these legions were so deadly was because of their organization and their order. 
that even though they would be thousands of men, they fought with a focus and a precision. Is the man that we see possessed in this passage living with that kind of order and precision? No. In fact, we're told that he is He's not organized. He's in a state of uncontrollable chaos. That in fact, when they say our name is Legion, it would be like having a a bottle of Clorox and calling it Gatorade. (laughs) Well, it's a green liquid, but it'll kill you. There was a lie kind of baked into this. And the people of the, the city, the people of, of the towns of this area, they experienced the chaos of this man. They, they knew it. Because they were afraid of this man and they tried to capture him. And he would break their bonds and run off. And people would hear him wailing and screaming hurting himself so that when this man comes up to Jesus he is naked bloodied bruised he's not ordered he's inflicted incredible damage on himself he was overwhelmed by this chaos that was living inside of him now it's important to understand though that while the Bible says there are supernatural beings that we can call demons that, that are opposed to God, that are trying to destroy people. The Bible doesn't blame everything on supernatural uh, rationale. And so while in this instance, the chaos of this man's life is supernatural, I think we all know that there are people whose lives are just as chaotic just as self-destructive and they're not experiencing it because of something supernatural going on but because of a, a just as painful but, but different point of chaos. And often in the same way that Legion is lying about the order that he would give this man, the things that possess people, that destroy us, are often promised to us, aren't they? So, we probably know people, or we know people who know people who have killed themselves overdosing on medicine. And we know people who destroy their lives in the pursuit of pleasure, And we know people who mar their bodies for the sake of beauty or the sake of acceptance. And in all those instances, there is chaos swarming in us. And what we need is Christ. Now, Luke mentions a detail that should chill us. It's about where this man was living. He had a long time, he'd worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but he had lived among the tombs. 
do you see that when chaos is inside of you, what's going to end up happening is that death is going to be all around you. And maybe some of you are experiencing that. Or you know that firsthand. And yet immediately, when Jesus steps off the boat, this thing recognizes Jesus. He knows that Jesus is not the same as all the other disciples. Where at one point, just a few moments ago, this creature was what terrified everybody else. Now in the presence of Jesus, this thing is afraid. And so it begs to flee from the presence of Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, go. And it jumps into these pigs. And they are driven into the lake. And they drown the pigs. (laughs) And what we see in this moment is that we're on the ocean, on, on the lake... Jesus controlled, had an authority and a power over the chaos that goes around us. And that in this moment with this man, we see that Jesus has power and authority over the chaos that swirls within us. Now, someone would probably throw the challenge. Well, why does God who made everything, why does he allow such chaos, right? Isn't that what the Christian faith says, that God made everything? So why does he allow chaos like this? Well, beneath that question is a decision that all of us have already made or need to make. And so let me ask you, when you think about the world that we live in, when you think about the chaos and the hurt and the pain, Is this the normal expected state of things? That's one way to look at the world. Everything's going to be like this until the end of time. The pain and the chaos and the hurt, this is normal. The other way to look at the universe is to say that it's broken. That it does not function the way that it should function. And so all the grief, all the chaos, all the hurt, all the violence and the war and the sickness and the terrors, they all exist because something broke. And the Christian answer to this question says that God made everything good. In fact, he made everything, it says, very good. But it didn't stay good. It didn't stay good because of a human decision to push God away. And that when that decision was made to push God away, in the process, everything else was pushed and toppled over. So that all of the stuff of our life is a result of that rejection of God. Everything else has been knocked over. 
In fact, what the Bible says is that we were meant to walk with God and that God had created everything in such a way that he made everything out of nothing, but that he left work to be done for us as people. It says in Genesis that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, to make something, to put details into the world that God had created. That was the calling that we had. But we reject that calling. So I don't want that. Not only do we reject that calling, we reject even walking alongside God. And we push away from it all till we're at the point where we are living next door to destructive spiritual realities. Now, Jesus sends those demons away and there are these poor shepherds who have now just seen something and they have no idea what's going on. And so it says that they fled and they they told the people. And um, I think it's the wrong slide. I'm sorry, guys. It'll go away in a second. It says that they fled and they told the people. And so then the people of the town come to see Jesus, to see what happened. And what they find is that this man is now clothed, seating at the feet of Jesus. He's in his right mind. He's not to be feared. He's not a terror. He is at peace. That Jesus, when he takes away the chaos, he offers us peace. And it says that the the word spread and And the people don't know what to do. And and they're alarmed. But actually, this man and, and where he had been gives us a glimpse of what's ahead for Jesus. This man who in chaos was living with and in a place of death is given life and peace by Jesus. And in fact, it's not just this man that's going to be offered care. But that Christ is going to walk through chaos. He's going to enter into the chaos and the death that swirls around us so that he can offer us life and peace. That he's going to take away from us the pain and the hurt, the insanity that kind of lives around us and lives within us so that we can be seated at the feet of Jesus in our right minds. Now there are two responses to this reality. One is from the man who is now freed and at peace because of Jesus. And he says, I want to be with you. I want to follow you. Where you go, I want to go. 
but who is willing to be sent to share the hope that he has found in Christ. Who is going to go, as, as Jesus says, to tell of what God has done for him. That's one response when we move from chaos to peace. But there's another response, unfortunately. The other response is from the people who had seen what Jesus had done. They had seen this man who was a terror now at peace, which should have caused them joy, right? But it didn't. It terrified them. It terrified them. And so, they just saw the fact that there was someone who had the power to stop this demonic chaos. And they were terrified. They were blinded to the fact that he had the power to do this. He had the authority to do this. But they missed the kindness of Jesus. Because Christ comes into our world and he has the power to deal with chaos. Chaos outside of our lives. Chaos that, that, has, that maybe you say the things that have been done to you or the things that you have done to yourself. To the internal realities of your life as well as the external things kind of pushing down on you. That Christ has the power to deal with all of those things. But the reason that he deals with all of those things is because he cares about you. He cares about you. And so what we see in this passage is that Jesus conquers chaos so that he can offer you peace. Which should probably cause us to ask, who do we know that needs that kind of peace. Maybe it's a, a friend. Maybe it's a, a neighbor, a loved one, someone you, you work with. My encouragement to you would be to pray for them. Not to feel as you have to get everything done, and, but, but pray for them. Or at least to start by praying for them. But maybe, maybe you're the one who, who would acknowledge that there's a lot of chaos in your life. And you would love, you would hope for the kind of peace that's, that this man finds. Well, again, I would say the answer is prayer. Why? Because when we pray spiritually, what we're doing is we're sitting at the feet of Jesus. And if you are willing to sit at the feet of Jesus, then he is going to offer you his peace. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time together in your holy word. I pray for anyone here who, who does at this moment feel overwhelmed. They feel like the storm is 
is, is blinding them to the circumstances. They feel like the disciples who say there's, the, the boat is filling with water and they are in danger. I also pray for those of us who are struggling because of something going on in our heart, some chaos that we're holding that's consuming us. Jesus, would you free us? Would you care for us? Would you let us know that we can come to you and find peace and hope and life? It's in your name we pray. Amen.